thank you for his ministry. We thank you for the gift of the scripture that testifies to him. We pray that by your own grace, that you would help us to know him and love him through this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, it is Conference Championship Sunday. And the Jags aren't in it. But uh, many of you in that for that reason may have moved on. But lots of you and lots of people throughout the country will tune in today to see the Chiefs take on the Ravens and the Lions take on the 49ers. And in a couple of weeks, the winners will face off in between the commercials. And then so I, I'm a fan of the commercials. I like the commercials, but I really I do like the game. Uh, but the thing that that intrigues me the most, year in and year out, are the peripheral stories that always accompany the Super Bowl. A few years ago, it was the first time that two black head coaches had faced off against each other. Then another time, it was the first time two brothers were head coaches facing off against each other. Last year, it was two brothers in the game, the Kelsey brothers facing off. It'll be very interesting to see what story takes place uh, this year. But From my perspective as a preacher, uh, my favorite Super Bowl controversy, uh, at least the most useful uh, as a preacher, uh, uh, was from 2015, Deflategate. If you remember Deflategate and and 2015, uh, after the Patriots beat the Colts to get to the Super Bowl, it was discovered that the Patriots had not sufficiently inflated their footballs, giving quarterback Tom Brady and their receivers an easier grip on the ball in the frigid Boston conditions and therefore a competitive edge. And there, though the Patriots players and the coaches denied any wrongdoing, someone broke the rules. Maybe it wasn't Brady or Belichick. Maybe it was just an opportunistic ball boy, but somebody took it upon themselves to sneak past the authority of the NFL because they knew they probably wouldn't get caught, at least not until they had gotten what they wanted, which was the win and the Super Bowl berth, and by the way, all the money that comes with that. What intrigues me from a spiritual perspective about this particular story is the human compulsion to break the rules to get what we want. We want to be an authority unto ourselves. Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with desiring authority. In fact, we were created in the image of the ultimate authority, right? God Almighty. And we were created by him so that we might have dominion. There is a very real sense in which we were created for authority. But as the great Martin Luther said, sin takes the good for which we were created and bends it back on its on ourselves. Sin takes the good for which we were created and bends it back on ourselves. So now, desiring authority, not for the service of God, but for the service of our own wants and desires, the rules often apply so long as they are advantage advantageous to us. So that is Deflategate. 
That's every athlete who's ever used drugs to gain in a competitive advantage. That is so many cases of illegal accounting and corporate greed. That is an addict who is uh, assuring their distraught family that this time they will be clean. What can I get away with in order to get what I want? Now, there are probably some here who are rule followers. I, myself, am usually a rule follower, and my rule followers might be saying to themselves, Joe, I would, I would never do anything like that, and you probably wouldn't. But let's just not be fooled into thinking that what these examples are on perhaps a macro level are, are, are any different before a holy God than what we often do on a micro level. For example, I know the speed limit, but I drive as fast as I think I can get away with without getting a ticket. Probably just me, right? (laughs) I can remember playing uh, cards with my great-grandmother when I was just a child. I think we were playing double solitaire, and I caught a mistake that she had made getting rid of her cards. And I pointed out, and she fumbled with her words for a minute and then just said matter-of-factly, I didn't think you'd catch that. What was I going to do? She's 88. I was 10. We had a friend in seminary who loved her mother-in-law's pot roast. Raved about it. Her kids asked for her famous pot roast every time they went over to grandma's house, but the mother-in-law would never share her secret recipe. Finally, after years of asking many times, uh, the mother quietly took her daughter-in-law by the hand into the kitchen, opened up the garbage can, and showed the wrapper for Hormel microwavable pot roasts. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with microwavable pot roasts, but maybe just a little something wrong with intentionally passing it off as the secret family recipe to continue to get affirmation. Uh, These are just very low stakes, everyday examples of how we seek to make or break the rules for ourselves to get what we want. And all of that is just an illustration or one example of how we want to be our own authority. We just want to be our own authority. We feel like we have a right to be our own authority. Our society tells us every day in every way we have we are our own ultimate authority. It's part of the human condition. And all of that is just a way of introducing our gospel passage where what is on display is the authority of Jesus and how his authority confronts and ultimately overcomes all other authority, including our right to our own. Now, to say that Jesus is the one with authority might sound a little top-down, sort of like Sergeant Jesus, you know, and but that's just because we want our own authority. This passage tells us that placing ourselves under the authority of Jesus puts us right where we want to be. In fact, right where we were made to be. Now, as the passage begins, we see that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue at the little fishing village at Capernaum. Some of you have been to that synagogue before. Uh, Mark does not tell us what Jesus said. Isn't that interesting? He's not concerned to tell us the content of what Jesus taught, but rather that the focus was on the fact that Jesus' audience is astonished, gobsmacked. They are blown away 
by Jesus' teaching. Now, why is that? It says, because he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. So we've got to ask then, what's the difference? What is it that made Jesus such a better teacher than the scribes? He had better illustrations, uh, more empathy for the audience, more commanding stage presence. Maybe. But the fundamental difference between the scribes and Jesus was that the scribes taught the scriptures as interpreters. Jesus taught the scriptures as the author. The scribes were like me. And like most modern preachers, they probably were not bad people. They loved the scriptures. They loved God. They gave their lives to the study and the teaching of the scriptures. And it was probably, usually, their earnest desire to give the right interpretation. But there was no comparison. If Jesus walked in here right now, you would tell me to sit down. Jesus is speaking about the scriptures in a way they had never experienced before because he's the author. He was the voice who spoke in creation. He was the one who inspired the prophets. The scriptures were written from his heart. They expressed his mind and his will. I I frequently listen to audiobooks, and I always prefer it when the author is the one who's reading it. Uh, Their passion comes through in their voice. They know where to put the accents. It's so much more vivid when it's read by uh, the author than by a professional hired hand, right? And how much more true must that be with the very word of God? Jesus spoke these words of life with a fullness, a richness, a confidence, a, a convincing influence, an authority that they had never heard before. He taught in a way that shed new light on the character of God and new light on the word of God because little did they know Jesus was God. And the crowds that soon clambered after Christ show that the authority with which Jesus taught did not make him intimidating. His authority only made him more attractive and accessible. He was not the drill sergeant to be avoided, but the gracious and loving Savior to be cherished, followed, and pursued. And when they finally would connect the dots that Jesus was in fact the Son of God, they would see that God was not an angry dictator with a rod to be feared, but a good shepherd with a crook to be appreciated. They had never heard teaching like this before. They were astonished, even caught off off guard by his authority that he taught, with which he taught the scriptures. And so then, in order to continue to make the case that Jesus is the Son of God, Mark, the gospel writer, illustrates that authority for us. Jesus has been teaching the scriptures as an expression of his own heart and will. And now, here's what that authority looks like spiritually and practically. Just then, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean 
spirit. Now, it seems to me we are much more comfortable uh, with the reality of angels than with the existence of demons, but the Bible is unblushing in its declaration of the reality of both. In fact, as far as I can tell, demons and angels are essentially the same thing. It's just different bosses, right? So Mark is not making the case for the existence of evil spirits. He just takes it as a given, and this man has one. And at the very least, this man is possessed of a spirit that does not want to be under the authority of Jesus. And it kind of freaks him out when he is confronted with the authority of Jesus. We're not told anything about this man. Was he homeless? Always presenting as psychologically unstable? I mean, that's one way to picture him. Or was he just like a regular guy, kind of an alpha dog, you know, just my way or the highway, successful because of his own authority? Was he that kind of guy? Maybe. Something else? Maybe. We're not told. But what is crystal clear is that when he is confronted with Jesus, the spirit within him understands it's him or me, but it's not both. There is no compromise. There's no, well, we'll get Jesus on Sunday, but the man gets me for the rest of the week or any arrangement like that. I said last week when God made us, he made us with one throne on our hearts and it's me or Jesus, but it's not both. And let's note too that the demonic spirit is not shouting about the content of Jesus' teaching. He is shouting about Jesus himself. What have you to do with me? Have you come to destroy me? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's ironic, maybe even comical, that Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and everyone is astounded by his authority, but the only one who really knows what they're dealing with is the demon from the pit of hell. And the demon of darkness knows he's got no chance against Jesus like a housefly fighting a hurricane. He is standing before the God of all creation, the definition of goodness and holiness, the one who came to rescue humanity from the very havoc and godlessness that this unclean spirit exists to create. The spirit in the man knows he's in trouble. It's him or Jesus, but it's not both. When Jesus shows up, there is inevitable conflict precisely because of his eternal authority. Jesus offends and disrupts our own insistence for our own authority and on our own self-serving rule-making and rule-breaking. And the man pitches a fit. I remember one time hearing our youth minister, Hannah Barden, talk about this passage. She said, if this happened in our church or in any church, we would see the demon and we would cast out the man. But Jesus sees the man and casts out the demon. We would see the man and we would see the demon and cast out the man, but Jesus sees the man and casts out the demon. And I think that is beautiful. Jesus is not put off by the disruptive, uncomfortable behavior. He sees through the man's trouble, to the man's heart, and he has compassion. And Mark is telling us 
that Jesus does not wield his authority to catch us doing something wrong. He wields his authority to save us. Such is the character and the nature of Jesus that even in his divine cosmic authority, he is not against us, he is for us. He loves us because of his character, not ours. He expresses his authority by giving grace, not by giving shame and accusation. This is what makes Jesus' authority so inviting. He does not see the sin and cast us out. He sees us and casts out the sin. How does he do that? Well, he took it all upon himself, all of our sin, when he hung on a bloody cross. And he said, it is finished. And he died. And that is some kind of authority. He cast himself out so that we might be brought in. So here's what I want us to hear. That giving ourselves daily to the authority of Jesus actually makes us our best and truest self. The self that we were created to be is not at all that now you have to follow all those rules, right? It's just about living joyfully and trustingly under the authority of joy incarnate. For he is right where you want to be. Amen?